0: This is the Darkest Page Podcast. There are some places in the world which seem to have started out with the very essence of charm and have simply grown less so in our modern age of functionality over beauty. Many villages of the north of England share this feature, but not all. There is a place here where it is almost impossible to believe that there was ever any charm. The winding streets lack the gorgeous sweep and instead clunk and lurch from left to right. The quaint, short terraced cottages that should resemble snug and warm boards seem vapid and empty, with windows too small to offer meaningful light or use, and rooms likewise a fraction too small to offer any sense of real comfort without being cramped. The footpaths are bland. The great places were once lined with trees, red post boxes and telephone boxes, In the harshness of the modern world, the beauty of these items is left to the fate of modern abandonment of beauty. Yet some places are even devoid of this past character. It also seems that very Mother Nature has never cared for such places. Travelling to them often comes with the grayness of the coming rain and wind sweeping through them. They sit in a small valley alone, and it is an eternal mystery as to why they exist in the first place trapping the foul weather endlessly, no matter the time of year, and lacking all past and current charm and beauty. And yet, I find myself in such a place, a place in which I needed to come and yet simultaneously wish to never set foot after my first vision of it. I come to Bexley in the North for personal reasons only, for it is certain not to be for pleasure in such a place. It was when I arrived that I first saw the dredge of the place and it was only after leaving the station and searching for the hotel that I was able to glean that the people were just as empty and functional with no beauty. The hotel I have landed myself in is simply called Bexley House. It is one of the more charming buildings in the village, which isn't saying much about the village or the house, but it is opposite the one place I was most interested in the church across the village green. The only bit of character in the place, and yet left to rot at the heart of the village. After resting, I will go to the church and do what so many have done in the past. I have come to look at the records held there of my family. The records that have not been digitized, the ones held in the vaults collecting dust. It pains me to my very core that I could have blood in my veins from the font of Bexley rot. My room is small, with just a desk, a few chairs, a bed, and the usual small kitchen corner. I cannot really complain. It is comfortable enough, and a view to the only nice part of the village was certainly an unexpected bonus. The spire of the church looming over in a soft sunsetting light was the most beautiful thing in this place, without a doubt. And with the desk placed facing it, it was a perfect place to work on why I was here. I needed to find the last few links of the great-grandparents here in Bexley. Starting my family tree was something of a passive hobby, dipping in and out over the years until I had hit all the dead ends. The dead ends that nag over the months of not knowing, the dead ends that tease greater family history, the dead ends that present the challenge that seems impossible and unsurmountable. I will not bore and recount with you, dear reader, the entirety of my family history, but will merely inform you of what you need to know for the tale that follows. I am in Bexley because of my maternal great-grandparents. My late mother's father, my grandfather, was born in Bexley, but I was never able to find out who his parents were. Hence, why I am here, as there must be something in the parish records of Bexley Church where I must find my grandfather, and most importantly, His parents. Whilst thinking on this matter, I found that I was invariably staring up at the church spire, now shrouded in floodlights, except on one side where the light had clearly either become covered with some undergrowth of the cemetery, or perhaps itself had become damaged or even destroyed. Sleep came easy that night after the long train journey my sleep was dreamless and when i awoke i knew without a doubt that i had not had quite a restful sleep as i had wished i had always found dreamful sleep tends toward a restful and energized day of the next but when the dreamless sleep descends i find that my energy lacks bexley church stands in the center of an overgrown cemetery A handful of graves had bunches of flowers on them, but most were left to the wild cemetery which clearly had little more than its grass cut in the last few months. Headstones were scattered here and there, with a row lining the far wall of the fallen and damaged ones with an array of names, some more unusual than others. The edges of the cemetery were marked with a dry stone wall in need of repair, and the path leading to the entrance was made from chipped and broken flagstones. The spire looked much higher up close, leaning towards the clouds. Looking up at it induced the strongest feeling of vertigo, and I could do nothing but look back down towards the church entrance, with the fleeting thought that I should have called ahead to make an appointment to see the parish priest, or some other ecumenical official passed through my mind. But there was no time for such things now that I stood in the cemetery. What strange places churches are one of the few places where the entirety of life was centred. Less so these days, but more in the past. Marriage, the beginning of new families coming together in wonderment, the christening of new life, the safe passage of the dead to the afterlife, not to mention all the celebrations on the religious calendar. Approaching the door, I could feel that this centre of life and death was no longer true. The centre of the village was no longer here, and somehow this marked the rot of Bexley even more pronounced here, than in any other place. The door needed sanding, painting and varnishing. The creak as it opened seemed strangely comforting and beyond the darkness of the porch was surprising when coming into from the light of the morning. A moment of my eyes adjusting and I could see beyond into what must have been the south aisle. I called into the church and only my own voice came back to me venturing further inside it was clear the rot had continued if one did not look too closely then all the work and repairs that were needed could have been overlooked there was still no sign of anyone the altar at the far end was shrouded in a white cloth topped with the cross and two unlit candles i could say i strolled over towards the altar but that wouldn't be correct It was more like I merely drifted towards it, like driftwood on a tide being pushed toward the beach, and all I could see in my increasing tunnel vision was the altar. I was halfway down the nave when the voice shattered my vision and broke the spell this church held over me. Can I help you? His was an old voice. I had formed an image so readily in my mind before I turned to look at the source. An old and parched voice that went with the same old and parched face and grey eyes. My image was nearly complete, and when I turned I saw the priest. An elderly man, balding with parched and aged skin. His eyes were not grey as I had instantly envisioned, but were ice blue. And the man, the priest, carried a faint, welcoming smile. Yes. Excuse me, good morning. I'm Stephen Lindsay. I was hoping you could help me. Of course. His eyes probed me carefully, almost as if he were trying to recognize me from his flock. My family were from here, my great grandparents. I'm looking for the records to find them. Well, hopefully finding them. He placed his fingers across his chin and mouth. I see. I haven't been in the old records for many, many years. I have a few things to do. If I were to loan you my office and the books, would that be acceptable? Or more than acceptable. After a somewhat clumsy orientation to the priest's office, he, Father Michael Barryman, left me with several old tomes of genealogical gold. Of course, I had only a guess at a range of dates for my great-grandparents being here, but I knew that my great-grandmother was born and married here. All I had to do was find her. The office itself was nice enough, up a spiral stairway at the back of the church, where Father Barryman had ventured from to accost me so effectively. The desk was up against a small window surrounded by bookcases that overlooked the back of the church and the graveyard. The bookcase is carried on around most of the walls, broken only here and there for wall-mounted lamps and shelves and a few framed pictures. The floor was wood with a dark red rug strewn across, and the door behind me backed out onto a small landing, leading to the staircase going both up and down. The landing was too small for my liking, but there was nothing to fear as long as solid footing was taken. Aside from the books the father had left me with, there was only a lamp, and a small writing set on the desk. Plenty of space for me to delve into the records. The day wore on, and like many other times when looking into my own family history, I had completely lost track of it. I was buried in the earliest of the records that I was given when my attention was finally drawn away by a clatter from behind me, like something rolling down the stairway. I lifted my head and looked out the window, half expecting to see some vague reflection behind me of the priest, telling me I needed to leave for the day. But there was nothing. I turned and looked up at the half-open door, and for a moment again expected the priest. But again, there was nothing. The light from the windows was rapidly dying, and the lamps across the walls were taking over the role of light giver, and now only darkness and a faint orange glow from the other lights came through the door. Another clatter, this time higher up the stairs in the very height of the tower. The floor, or maybe the chair, creaked as I stood up. Hello? Silence. Though, afterwards looking back, I could maybe hear something overhead but this could be the imagination of hindsight. But at that moment, I could hear nothing. The dead daylight left a colder room than I realized. I stepped closer to the door, awaiting any further sound from the other side or above. A faint tapping grew louder, or perhaps closer. I couldn't tell with the acoustics often inherent in the oldest of churches. I felt my heart grow as cold as the rest of the room, and my vision grew as dark as the coming evening. I steeled myself against whatever was on the other side as best I could, and yet the tap, tap, tap grew louder. The door pushed open and my breath froze in my throat. Why, you look like you've seen a ghost, said Father Barryman as he held to the door. After a moment, when the frozen breath had thawed, I exhaled. I heard you coming and I thought, yes. To be honest, I I don't know what I thought. I left the priest to his own and found myself leaning back at the desk in the hotel facing the church in the darkness across the way. I cannot recall what I thought about, just that my mind wandered across the myriad of names from the ledger the priest had given me access to. To me they were meaningless, but to some they would hold the world and the key to what I now sought. Tomorrow would see more luck. With every one of these names I write down and cross off, I grow closer to that final name that I need to unlock my past. I leaned back and thought that there would be an end to it when I found my great-grandparents. But I knew that I would just hit another dead end, another impassable and unsolvable puzzle that would lead me to another dreary place such as this. I looked up out of the window and saw it then. A figure, or at least something that resembled a figure, stood atop the church tower. I leaned forward as if the extra two feet I moved would make the image before me across the green any clearer. Needless to say, it did not. With the vague shadow in the moonlight and the strange glow of the light below, I was still not sure what I saw. And then it was gone, as if for me a mere wisp of thought or memory. Perhaps my eyes played tricks on me, or perhaps now, looking back, it is my memory which plays tricks. In either case, I never knew what I saw or didn't see. Another dreamless, tiring sleep followed. I had pledged to remain here until I had my answer, but the thought that it would take longer than another day in this place contributed to a failed, restful sleep. The next day I was again embroiled in the ledgers crossing the names off until, after hours of searching, I found it. The key, the words, the person. My great-grandmother, Elizabeth Harmon, married George Anderson, my great-grandparents. I leaned back in both elation and despair. At that moment, I had destroyed the last vestiges of hope that I had not descended from anyone in this place. But there they were, but there was more. I flicked through looking for others of these names. The clatter came back behind me, something falling down the stairs again. There must be some strange echo of acoustics in this church, and the priest must be coming up the stairs like last time. I turned and waited with the dying light once again behind me, but the door did not open. Footsteps most assuredly now clanked up the stairs overhead. Standing, I still waited for the door to open, but still nothing happened. For a moment, the thought that I should venture further up the stairway crossed my somewhat clouded mind. The darkness beyond the threshold seemed to push me back. I opened the door. I saw the flickers of light from below, but above there was nothing. I was sure there was someone above, yet they must either have excellent night vision or carry their own torch. I looked up at the darkness as if I could see around the curve of the spiral upwards. Part of me wanted to step up there. To seek the source of the clank, just take one step at a time upwards. Are you alright? For a third time the vicar, Barryman, was within arm's reach of me without telegraphing his approach. I cannot deny that I jumped and had the vicar not been in the way, I could well have fallen down the spiral to the nave below. I thought, I thought you must have been up there. The vicar smiled but his ice eyes stayed firmly on me. How goes your search? I returned the smile. I found my great grandparents, Elizabeth Harmon and George Anderson. Anderson? Anderson? Hmm. I rings a bell. What do you mean sir? The vicar drifted past me into the office I had recently vacated and scanned across the books on one of the many shelves. He pulled another ledger, much smaller than the others he had granted me access to, and leafed through the pages carefully. His age had clearly begun to betray his capabilities. He placed the book carefully down on the desk among my notes, retrieved his glasses from his inside pocket, balanced them on his delicate nose, and returned to the small notebook. After a moment he broke the silence. Anderson, yes! I knew I'd seen that name before. The Anderson family were quite prominent around the village at the time, it seemed. Really? Is there anywhere I can find out about them? He put his ice eyes on me again, and without an expression said, The local museum will probably be able to help you. They'll be closed now. But tomorrow, a clunk echoed overhead. Did you hear that? But my words seemingly fell on deaf ears, as he seemed to neither hear my question, or the clank from overhead. Tomorrow I would find out more about George Anderson. Tomorrow. Another day in this terrible place. This terrible place decaying from the inside out. That night I was sat again staring at the church from my hotel window. I didn't really know what I was doing. A part of me was waiting to see if what happened the previous night was going to happen again but perhaps this time I could get a better glimpse at the phantom atop the tower. The muscles in my arms and legs gave out as I grazed sleep more than once. In one of those moments I was sure the figure was back on top of the church. I couldn't see his face or make out any real features, but I knew he was looking at me, perhaps returning my wonderment. I snapped back from the brink of sleep with the sensation of falling, I had had this sensation at times of exhaustion when falling asleep, but never to the extreme like this. I believe it is called Hypnagogic Jerk, but this time it was less a start from sleep but an alertness of danger. Something dangerous was near me, and I could not see or make it out. Sleep was again void of any dreams that night. The old woman running the museum was no different to almost everyone else in this place. Cold, rotten and grey. She eyed me like some interloper or invader into the village. The museum was uninteresting. The only thing I found of note is what I am about to reveal in these words. There was a wall in the main room, for there were only three rooms and a reception, which had photographs from the old days of the village. Before I'd ventured into these rooms, I put the museum's business card from the counter into my pocket. It was here that the old woman thawed somewhat when I asked about one photograph in particular. The photograph was clearly taken in the graveyard at the very church in the square, and in it were three people, one of which looked a lot like my great-grandmother. It was this that drew the question on my lips to the old woman. Was this man my great-grandfather? The old woman looked at the picture, then at me. It was framed on the wall and without a moment's hesitation, she took it down. I followed her. She took it to the front counter in the small reception hall and placed it face down. Scrawled across the back were names and dates that were clear to me as she read them. George Anderson, gravedigger and groundskeeper. So he was my great grandfather. The other man in the picture was John Anderson, his brother, also gravedigger and groundskeeper. The old woman nodded and removed her spectacles as she read the names. Oh, I remember when I was a girl about these two. So sad what happened. I stared at her, but my silent waiting did nothing to encourage her to speak, until I asked her what had happened. They were thick as thieves these two, my ma used to say. George was the older, but only by a year. They worked well in and around the church. John always had his eyes on this young lady, here in the picture with him, Elizabeth. They were to be married, but before they were wed, young John fell from the church tower. She stared at me. It was not a question I had uttered, but a statement of fact, and all I could back it up with was my vision, for want of a better description of the man atop the church. No, dear. He just vanished. George went to get him for a job at the church, finishing a new grave, I believe and he was nowhere to be found, just a note of farewell to George and Elizabeth. No one ever heard from him again. George still managed to get the grave for... I could not have known either way. A part of me was relieved I was not right in my intuitive assumption that John had fallen from the church tower, but yet it lingered in my mind like the Bexley rot lingered all around me. The old woman turned the photograph back over and for a moment a new face of grotesque appearance flashed before me, making me jump back a face of hideous proportions. It was too quick for me to see anything I can lay a description to. Too rapid for anything but a fleeting impression that dissolved my wits for just a moment before I realised that it could be nothing more than a mere trick of the light. A play of the shadows and reflections in the glass of the frame as the old woman twirled the object over. I watched her through the doorway as she placed it back on the wall in the main room. As she wandered back through she carried on in her dead croaking voice. Of course, it was something of a scandal when Elizabeth married George only a few months later. Their first baby came fast too, poor lad. They both left the village after that. If she said anything after that, I have no idea. I was out the door and racing to the church. I needed to see these names again. I needed to see it for myself and not through the aged memory of a Bexley resident. In the church there was the ledger where I had left it. The daylight was already going, but I did not care. The lights around the office flickered into life as I sat down. There was a birth. A boy. George, like his father. Died at the age of four of exposure. A note in the ledger said that he was found in the graveyard one morning. How this had happened I had no clue. A clunk from up the stairway drew no attention from me aside from a mere acknowledgement what had happened? I flicked through and found nothing more. They must have indeed left like the old woman in the museum had said. I panted. Another clunk, then footsteps, definite and distinct footsteps, slow and ponderous, each seemingly more deliberate than the last. It must be Barryman, the vicar. I stood up ready to greet him with a barrage of questions, but no one came to the door, but the steps continued upwards. I moved to listen closer at the door without stepping foot beyond the office, and waited for them to fade far above me. They were gone. I had no sheer doubt in my mind that they were footsteps. I could not hide in the office. I needed to see about these steps, and I needed to thank the vicar. I had what I needed, and I could be gone in the morning. I opened the door and looked out into the gloom of the tower, and up around the corner of the stairs. I had never been beyond the landing which housed the access to the office that I had been using the last few days and somehow it seemed wrong to go beyond and further up. I put these worries and anxieties behind me and crept up the stairs. Hello? Mr. Barryman? No reply. As I gained the stairs I heard something open and close far above coupled with the sound of fresh wind. The roof access I assumed as there would be no other access to the outside at this altitude. I soon came to a ladder, attached to the wall, ascending high over the bell and up into the rafters of the roof. With the dim safety lights, I saw what must have been the hatch. As I sit and write these words, I do not know what came over me. In the cold and rational daylight, one would leave the church and its strange noises to themselves, and perhaps investigate the following day. But instead, I climbed the ladder, found the hatch unlocked, and ascended to the church spire roof. Alone and cold I stood and looked out over the desolate village. From my position I could see the windows of my hotel room. Had I left the light on? No. That must have been someone else's room where I saw an indistinct figure looking up at me. The wind blew strong against me in gusts and the roof wall was lower than I would have preferred. I looked down at the graveyard, which did nothing but induce severe vertigo in me. I gripped the sides of the walls, and that was when I felt it. A firm hand and a colder breath on my neck. A firm hand that pushed me towards the edge. A grip like ice colder than the wind and the reach of some inhuman animal right behind me. It took all my strength to throw myself backwards against the thing so as not to go tumbling down the spire into the graveyard. Instead, I fell back and rolled towards the hatch. I caught my balance and knelt back up looking at where I had just a moment ago stood. There, in the dim moonlight, I saw the figure, wearing nothing but rags and fragments of cloth. His, for it was a man undoubtedly, shoulder length hair was dishevelled and matted, but it was his face. In the briefest of moments before I somehow scrambled down the ladder, I could make out the dread face of the thing. The mouth agape as if there was no strength left in his jaw. The nose was pulled back. The skin mottled and blotched, but it was the eyes that forced me down the ladder. The empty space is scratched and void of life. I hit the floor at the bottom of the ladder, and the last thing I could remember of the night was hitting the floor going down the stairs. I woke up in the hospital, apparently suffering a concussion and lots of bumps and bruises, but nothing more serious. I was perhaps more comforted by the realisation that I was no longer in Bexley. I toyed telling others about the thing I would seen. I wasn't even sure I had actually seen it. That night coiled around and around my mind throughout the few days they observed me, and on my final day in the hospital I got a visitor. The old woman from the museum. Needless to say, I was not pleased to see her, but I remained civil. E, it's good to see you're on the mend. Thank you. I must pass on my thanks to the vicar. The vicar? Yes, it was certainly he who called the ambulance for me. Mr. Gossick? No, it wasn't Mr. Gossick. No, Mr. Barryman, the vicar. The vicar at Bexley is Mr. Gossick. He's been away for the week. I'm not sure I know any Barrymans these days. Of course, back then there was, well, like I was saying in a museum. It was Mr. Barryman's grave that George and John were filling before John disappeared. Nah, no, it was the virgin Mary who found you. My vision dimmed and my mind closed in on itself. I recall now where I had seen the unusual name Barryman on the headstone stacked against the wall in the graveyard. I didn't speak of the thing I saw, nor did I speak of what I believed to be true, that more than one person was laid to rest in Barryman's grave, and there was only one person who could have put him there, and the reason was as plain as Bexley itself. There are some places in the world like Bexley, which did start out with the very essence of charm and have simply grown less so in our modern age of functionality over beauty. Many villages of the north of England share this feature, but not all. There is a place here where it is almost impossible to believe that there was ever any charm. The winding streets lack the gorgeous sweep and instead clunk and lurch from left to right. The rot in this village is not just of the village, but of the people too, and of the people connected to it. Of me. The quaint, short terrace cottages that should resemble snug and warm boards seem vapid and empty, with windows too small to offer meaningful light or use, and rooms likewise a fraction too small to offer any sense of real comfort without being cramped. and graves shared with those that passed peacefully and forcefully. It also seems that very Mother Nature has never cared for such places. Travelling to them often comes with the greyness of the coming rain and the wind sweeping through them. They sit in small valleys alone, and it is an eternal mystery as to why they exist in the first place, trapping the foul weather endlessly no matter the time of year, and lacking all past and current charm and beauty. I will never find myself in such a place as Bexley. This place harbours ill blood at me, and the dead do not rest but live on there, and seek vengeance that was never breathed for wrongs long forgotten. I will not continue to look at that line of my family, I will not continue to unearth the graves of what should be left to history. Of what truly happened to me, I am content to leave in the same manner. Thank you for listening to the Darkest Page podcast. This has been The Visitor of Bexley Village. This episode was made possible with the support of the librarians of the Darkest Page, Alex Smith and Tonks. To see how you can support the Darkest Page, please visit patreon.com forward slash the Darkest Page. I have been your host and I wish you Pleasant dream.